you can't be good at filling positions if you're not good at creating a good candidate experience. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. Companies today face a global war for talent, and high-skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top freelancers to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Today's guest is Ken Lazar, the CEO of Scout. And also joining me today is Michael Kearns, the Vice President of Enterprise at TopTal. For over 20 years, Michael has worked alongside global growth executives as they try to navigate the future of the talent economy. The three of us have an in-depth discussion on the role that data and AI play in the recruiting process. Hi, I'm Ken Lazarus. I'm CEO of Scout. Scout's recruitment marketplace. We connect employers who have jobs to fill with providers who are expert in filling those specific jobs. So if you're looking for talent, uh, you need to find the right people. You need to find great talent. We'll find you the recruiter who knows that talent and can get them to you fast so you can make great hires quickly. Now, before we get into Scout and some really interesting stories, I do want to tell how this this podcast came together because I, I think it's a, a good story. Awesome. <laughs> tell me a little bit about how you got to Scout and your, your background. What, what was the journey to solving this particular problem that we'll talk about today? So I've been doing startups and tech companies for 25 years. Started my first company when I graduated out of college, and that was a very techie kind of thing. We're doing vibration, motion control for semiconductor equipment and, and all sorts of stuff. That's one of the reasons I love having these conversations is because where everybody is today is very far away from where they started. <laughs> yes, very far. <laughs> that was a great company. It was successful, but I learned a lot of things about what not to do and sort of over time figured out that software is much better for building a company than hardware, which takes a lot of money and a lot of time and uh, to develop and doesn't always work and those sorts of things. And, and, and also, so I've gravitated towards enterprise type startup companies and especially marketplaces over the last, let's say 10 years. Uh, I did a company that was an internet advertising company that was, also using algorithms to optimize ads serving up to people coming to the internet and so forth. And those were just great companies to scale because once you really figure it out what the problem was that and, and any company where you can identify and quickly, like if you have a need and if you can quickly match that need to someone who can solve that need for you, then you're going to make a good company if you can make that all work. But that's the basics is, you know, it's sort of like matching up the need to the demand, but it's, it's easy to say, but it's sort of hard to do. And if you think about what we're doing at Scout, where, you know, that need is filling the position and the expert who could help is the recruiter and we're making that match really quickly. And that, that becomes something that's really cool and valuable. We didn't have this interview scheduled. We met, we were at the SI executive forum here in London and we were sitting down at, at the conference talking and I asked about Scout and I said, oh, well, what kind of jobs do you have on Scout? You said some of the normals like, oh, you know, we, we land, you know, uh, directors of medicine, chief innovation officers, data science. And then you threw in some others that I just found fascinating, like chicken plucker, forklift operator and rodent surgeon. Yeah. So I'm assuming you work with a diversity of clients. 
Well, we do. It's mainly enterprise companies, Fortune 500 types, and they do have a lot of different jobs to offer, no question. But what's remarkable to me is more the provider side. So if you think about the providers, the recruiters, the ones who are, they have the relationships with the candidates, with passive candidates, they know where they are, they understand the jobs. When they when they focus and specialize in certain job areas, they become really good at it. And sort of, so believe it or not, for every job you might want to hire, there's a specialist out there and that's what they know how to do. So I have no idea how they find poultry workers or chicken pluckers, but they do. They know how to do it. They know where that community is. They have relationships with them. They're trusted by them, they can go get them and they can, you know, create, you know, get, get them. They're getting them jobs too, which is awesome. Like these people need jobs and they're, you know, delivering them thousands at a time to get jobs. And it's the same kind of thing where if you're looking for Java developers, that community, they're getting spammed by everybody on, you know, want a job, want a job, whatever. So they're only going to really talk to their trusted sources, the people they know and trust. And that's the recruiter who has those relationships with them and they can, convince them to look at a new job and so forth. So really from the enterprise side, it's like, how do I find that recruiter who has that specialty that, or that relationship The relationship can understand the job and have that relationship and can go find you a rodent surgeon, wherever the hell you find <laughs> rodent surgeons. I don't know, but that's what they're going to go do. And, and so we just have to figure out like who's good at these different jobs. And then they're going to go find the candidates. That's the beauty of the system. Do you find that scout sometimes, you know, if you take a Myers-Briggs test or some personality test and you're like, oh man, I, I didn't know I had this attribute. Mm. Do you find sometimes when you provide that data to the recruiters that they're surprised that they're an expert in a certain area where, where they may, they may think they're a generalist or, a, you know, a, a pretty broad recruiting firm. And you're like, no, well, actually you're really good at poultry farmers or, or data scientists or, you know, whatever that may be. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think one of the hard things as a provider is, is sort of getting the contract with, with the, especially these large enterprises. And so once you do, you sort of think, oh, well, I should just work on all their job types or whatever. And, and it's, you know, the difference between having like five people in interview and two in interview of let's say 10 you submit, maybe that's a little bit of a subtle difference or you're not really paying attention to that specifically, those kind of metrics. But from the employer side, who's got to process so many candidates, that difference is super important. And that difference is going to be a difference between like, you know, being an average recruiter and being a star, right? And we want to make sure you're a star and we want to make sure you're working on the jobs with the companies that are going to make you a star. Right. And, 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 and most of these recruiters are really good at something and we do help them find it sometimes. Yeah. Now, when you approach a large company, a Fortune 500 company and you go to their procurement team, I would assume, what are the resistance that they have to implementing technology? Cause I, I've, talk to a wide variety of, of people in procurement for uh, large organizations. And sometimes, you know, their entire focus is on reducing the number of suppliers. You know, they wake up every day, they say, hey, I have a vendor rationalization, this thing got out of hand. You know, my chief procurement officer says, hey, we can't have this many vendors. And so we need to really get control of this. And so a lot of them are in the process right now of getting control of a staffing situation in their organization that got out of hand. Now you come and you say, look, I'm a tech guy. I do algorithms. We're going to talk about some of the, the details of the data you collect. And are they receptive to that type of technology? Do they understand that they have that problem? They like, mm. what, how does that conversation usually yeah. go? Oh, oh, great, great question. And um, so plug to you, you know, you, you, you were saying like, let's, let's, we got to talk about the problem side, the problem, not the tech side, right? Yeah, yeah. Totally right. Cause they don't care either. Like what's my problem and you know, how are you going to help me solve it? That's what they care about. 
And uh, we'll give SIA a plug too, since we're here at the SIA conference, which is pretty awesome. And I was at, at our same bar last night and, you know, one of the SIA people were saying something about, you know, here, here's like the five stages of what the companies are going to go through. So for, you know, it's chaos at first. And then and they're like, we got to get this under control, right? So we got to get in, you know, an MSP, a VMS, something to kind of control the technology and understand my spend and understand where it is. At least I know what I'm spending. That's like stage one. And then it's like, oh my God, I'm spending a lot of money, right? And we have, we, we see that too when we come in, they're like, oh, thank you very much. You've told us how much money we're spending. So now how are we going to reduce that? Right. So that's, you know, stage two is, okay, how do we reduce or, it? Or, or even make it more effective. I mean, I, I, I think sometimes the conversation goes, they're trying to save money. And I think a lot, when they look at the vast amount that these organizations are spending on independent work, they say, am I spending it efficiently? Even if, even if the budgets don't have to go down, which, you know, a plug to every finance person, of course they have to go down, but they're trying to say, well, I, I know if I, if I don't understand it and I can't measure it, I know I'm not spending it as efficiently as possible in getting the highest quality I can. Yeah. There's been a separation between, you know, procurement, focusing on, on the staffing and cost reduction. And, and then you still have, you know, HR and hiring man, whatever they're saying, like, I need good candidates and I need them now. Right. Right. So there's, and, and they've been kind of siloed and I, I do think they're starting to come together a little bit more, but definitely it's been driven, I think over the last 15, 20 years by procurement and, and by cost reduction, because these are gigantic numbers of spends and things like that. And so, you know, they're like, we don't really want to hear about your quality, can't whatever, you know, like that's your problem. You get to pick who it, but, but we have to reduce the cost. And, and so we have to run a program, a program, we have to reduce the cost. You have to stick with our program or it's not going to work. So this is what we're doing. And they figured out that, well, you know what? We can consolidate vendors. It's easier to manage. We give them more volume. They're going to give us a better rate. You know, all that. Carry one hundred and one. Yeah, like vendor here's our playbook. Right. So here's a playbook and run through it. And and they and that worked for a while because there was a lot of sort of chaos to rein in and rationalization to be had. But then you get to this point where how much more of that can we do? There's not more blood to squeeze from that stone anymore. And by the way, now, because we've done all this rationalization and we, we have to go into new areas, we need new people for new, new skill sets. Now, what do we do? Like, oh my God, like there's no one in there, our top little group here that we've whittled down to that can do all that. They can do a lot of the things we do, most of it, but not all. I think they are now looking for innovation of how do I deal with that? So tell me like, what's the solution? Because I need more streams of candidates. I need more ways to get new candidates, but it's hard to get it through this program that I've rationalized down to this to like generic bones. blob of, of standard kind of uh, positions and everything. And so you're seeing them look at talent pools and direct source, you know, all these different things are they're trying to do, but, but none of them are great, especially because of the ephemeral nature of talent. Good talent doesn't just like sit around in the shelves waiting. <laughs> for, yeah, so they talk about talent pools. Like, where's the pool? Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, there's no pool. Like, it's there's you know, it, you're lucky. It's the water's leaking out, right? There's no pool, right? Uh, you know, so so maybe like candidate CRM and, and nurturing. I, I believe in all that stuff, but this idea of a pool where for months there are candidates that are sitting there until you happen to need them. That is not happening in today's market, right? So you need to to tap into new sources of, of folks and that's where a marketplace can really play and especially just you know we're saying hey just let's you try this with your hard to fill jobs because you know your your current base isn't 
expert at that and even let them try it first, but they still have lots of unfilled jobs. So I think that there are ways you can really get them excited about trying out something new if it's on something they're having no success with anyway. And that's a, that's a good wedge. And then hopefully, you know, they're, they do want to innovate. I think the trouble more is there's a lot of companies that are, are throwing in, you know, solutions, tech solutions at them. And it's, it's what sort of you said about the tech problem is like, okay, we can talk about tech all we want, but can they evaluate different tech? Not like, they, you know, it's not their thing. Their thing is, I know people, I have good EQ. I know to see if they're a good cultural fit. What type of machine learning you're doing versus some other machine learning company? I don't know. Like, you know well, no, every, everybody comes in and says, you know, I've got this brand new AI blockchain Bitcoin solution for you. Right. <laughs> and it's going to have you faster time to fill and higher fill rates and save you money. Tell me a customer story for Scout, like your canonical customer story where they came in, they were kind of lukewarm. You know, maybe they were still busy doing vendor rationalization and they didn't realize, you know, they were going into that next stage. Because I, I, you know, I've worked at a couple of big companies who are at that stage where they're kind of done the vendor rationalization. Mm -hmm. It took 18 months or whatever it took to get there. And now they're trying to figure out what, because for 15 years they hadn't innovated. And so now you're taking an organization that hasn't innovated over 15 years and saying, now you're an innovation organization. And, and that's, that's a completely different mindset and skill set compared to just sort of turning the crank and, you know, like squeezing the blood out of the, out of the stone. So tell me a customer story where Scout came in and how it worked and how they approached the implementation and those learnings. Because I think it's really important for the listeners of this podcast to understand the tactical parts of implementing how it went, how to think about starting and stuff like that. Yeah. So first of all, in all the, the stories, there's usually, you know, some event that drives, you know, someone will want to do something different, right? And, and it's either a geographic expansion, a new development center they need to build, a new person coming in who's charged with change and doing something different. It's usually one of those kinds of events you know, I think some of the more interesting ones are, are ones where either through acquisition or plan, you're, you're expanding geographically because that's where a, the, you especially get hurt by your whittle down base, right? If you're expanding sort of geographically and with a new technology, for example, so one customer said, well, we need to build a new data science center. So first of all, it's like, where do I build it? <laughs> like, so, so we have the data to show like where there's talent, where there's not, so forth, and we can help them. First of all, I even identify like where to do it. So your data pool of all the recruiters that go through the Scout system, that anonymized data is available to all of your customers. Yeah, well, I mean, we create the reports and stuff from it. So we don't just give them the data set anonymized to go play with. Right. right, right? right. So we're, we're using that for, for improving Scout, for, you know, creating insights. And, and everyone gets the, the, the suite of reports. Right. And, and we'll do some, you know, custom ones for people too. And it's things like, okay, you know, in different areas, you can say for, for this pricing, for this whatever, you're going to get this kind of candidate response. And, and so we can see the sensitivities on that, which we can use to either help them save money or help them get talent faster or pick an area where you want to go build something. How do you measure quality? I enjoy the transparency that Going Direct provides and, you know, all the online platforms and marketplaces have some sort of rating or, or star system right. and it's all project-based outcome work. And so you can, it's easy to judge quality. How do you judge the, the quality? So we have quality of recruiters and we have the quality of candidates, right? So both of those can be measured. 
For recruiters, because we use our machine learning to normalize jobs across the whole network. So it doesn't matter what one company calls a job, another company calls a job. Like we bucket them into, it's probably like, 1300 different jobs in North America, let's say. And, and then, you know, you can aggregate them into groups of jobs and then high level categories like it or something. Right. So there's basically this like job filing system that gets created. And then whenever a job comes in, we figure out which drawer goes in the file. And then we look at all the data against that. How many candidates were submitted? How far did they get in the interview process? How, how long was your resume looked at? Literally, was it forwarded to the hiring manager? What did the hiring manager say about it? Did they come in for an interview? How'd they do in the interview? Were they a finalist? Did they get an offer? Did they start and so forth? And, and so quality is, is making a great hire, right? So quality is higher. So a recruiter who, you know, the higher percentage of candidates that get invited into the interview process and ultimately get hired, that's quality of a recruiter because that's what you want, right? right? And then, you know, quality of the candidate, you know, those are the ones you want to hire. So it's almost, it's sort of the same thing in the sense that it's fit and we can measure fit, but that's a little bit harder to, uh, you know, objectively measure fit. We can measure fit to a certain point, I think, pretty accurately with the algorithms and so forth. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of subtle human complexities involved in a hiring decision that, again, you know, real recruiters have to make those decisions about who's going to hire and so forth. But it's not quality if you don't want to even interview the person. Right. So so in in that respect, you can we get a pretty good rating of, of quality and stuff. And on our system, even like an average recruiter is going to be pretty high quality in that one out of four resumes that you see from that recruiter, you're going to want to bring into interview. That's really good. Uh, you know, if you think about the usual kind of contingent world, if let's say a five-star recruiter, you're going to double that. You're going to literally want to interview half the people that come, that, that are presented. Which to your point is much more efficient than what, you know, general programs are doing today. Right. And so that's quality, right? That, that's sort of how we measure quality. And then, and we have the ranking system that identifies, you know, who are the higher, higher quality and better at what and all those different things. I want to go back. So we were talking about, you know, there's an inciting event at a company, whether it's geographical expansion. So get specific with me on a customer scenario that you've seen. So yes. like what industry? Yeah. So this is a, a banking customer and, you know, one of the large banks based in North Carolina. So you <laughs> take, take your guess. And they were looking to say, Hey, we, we want to build this new center. And, and they were looking for data to help them figure out like where, where to build it. And we were able to show them the sensitivities and basically, you know, looked at our data, but did a study for them to make sure, you know, that, you know, we presented the data in a way that they could easily absorb and understand and so forth. They didn't want to pile through the data all themselves. They wanted us to help them. And and we identified three regions where it would be good to do and some pros and cons of each of those three regions and gave them that information to make a great decision on where they want to put it. And then once they have that, then it's like, okay, yep, we're going to do that. We don't know any recruiters there necessarily, right? So let's use Scout to, to get the recruiter submitting. And yeah, within, you know, a day or two, you have like a whole bunch of great candidates because there are great recruiters in that area who do those things and the data in our network lets us tap into it and direct those jobs directly to those recruiters and they can start submitting. When you go into, a, let's say, a Fortune 500 company that probably has a relationship with a major staffing firm, a global you know, right. uh, staffing firm, in this example, you know, the, the bank is setting up sort of local subsidiary or local branch, the local recruiters outperform the national firms? The local recruiters can, or not necessarily, but when I say a recruiter in that area, I mean one who has success placing people in that area. I frankly don't care where they live, where they sit, where they work. But if they're successful placing candidates in that area, we geolocate them there 
from a recruiting standpoint. So a lot of them are local, but not all of them are. Yep. And maybe they used to live there and, and they have a really good network and they're but keeping you're it up. It's completely database, so it doesn't matter. Right. If you're a local firm or a national firm, or uh, if you have success in the network, the data shows that you can place candidates that... Yeah, think about it. If you've been successful placing data scientists in Albuquerque, New Mexico for the past three months, the next couple of months, you're still going to be good at it. You know, it doesn't like you don't stop being good at it all of a sudden. And so if you can locate those recruiters who are good at doing what you need done, then they're going to keep doing it. Now, one of the things with all... AI database systems is, and especially in the, in the vernacular now, is bias. If you put the same type of data through the system, you're going to get the same results, and, and then it's inherently biased because the humans that are putting the information in are... How does your system protect against bias to ensure, you know, because most organizations now are saying, hey, there is value in diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of background, you know, all sorts of types of diversity. How does your system ensure that you're not providing homogeneous pools of people to organizations? This is something that our enterprise customers really care about. It's super important. They have pretty strong metrics about you got to, you know, you got to hire great people. You also got to hit your diversity numbers, right? It's not acceptable. And especially we're talking about a bank before, right? You know, you're talking about you when you walk into a bank in a community, whatever that community looks like, that's sort of what the people at the bank need to look like and so forth. So, I mean, that's just one of many reasons why they're really focused on diversity in addition to the fact that it's the right thing to do and it, it actually creates a better outcome. So it is something our enterprise clients need and want. And you're absolutely right also about humans are biased. Danny Kahneman is like the godfather of, you know, all this human decision bias and you know, did lots of remarkable work. He's, he's worth looking up if anyone's interested in that stuff. But I'll make sure I put uh, some information in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. Um, but, you know, things like affinity to bias, which means you prefer to pick people look like you. Um, visualization bias is another one of my favorites, which means if you can picture something happening, you're going to overestimate the odds of it happening. It's why everyone's afraid of, you know, sharks because they saw Jaws. And, you know, really your odds of getting getting eaten by a shark are fairly low. Well, you're, you're, you're more likely to die by having a coconut on, hit you on the head Probably. than you are by being eaten by a shark. Exactly. But, you know, everyone's our jaws, so that's what everyone <laughs> worries about. That's visualization bias. So there are all these biases that humans have, and it's it actually what's, you know, helped us actually stay alive for a long time. So there is a reason for them being there, but they are there. And as you said, what happens is it's in the data because the data sets that are used for machine learning and AI were all created by human decisions. You know, if you're looking at the data of who got hired, well, those were all billions of human decisions, little ones for each hire, whatever along the way that created a biased data set. So you just have to know, you know, your data sets bias, like that's given. So how do you then make recommendations on things that are not biased? So one is recruiters can have track records. As we talked about, if you're good at placing this kind of a position over a certain period of time, you're going to keep sort of being good at it. We also can look at, you know, we know what the stats should be from a diversity standpoint. And so we can see who's submitting and getting hired, what kind of candidates from a, a diverse standpoint. I mean, just looking at, let's say, gender diversity, which is something that we really spend a lot of time talking about and believe in. And, and also we know what the answer needs to be 50-50, right? So that's like an obvious goal. And we can look at our data and we can see for a given job type, being 50-50 on nurses isn't really good for anything. You know you know what I mean? Like that's, but if you're, if you could do 
submissions and hires on on Developer, Java developers, yeah, you're, data you're, scientists you're or, killing it, right? You're, you're doing great. And so what we can look at is who's good at diversity relative to the average, who's better at it versus others. And these are just the recruiters. So if a company's more interested in diversity, we're going to send the more of the of the jobs to the recruiters have demonstrated better diversity stats, right? Versus maybe being cheaper or, you know, whatever. So we can kind of optimize around around these different things. We also try to educate the provider network as to some of the sort of the differences. And most providers like to make money and be successful. And we see in our data that if you submit a female candidate, they are two times more likely to be hired than your male candidate. If we let them know that information, they may be highly motivated because they want to make hires, right? So so we can kind of like do some of those things. I think the thing that was fascinating when we started talking about Scout and the Scout Exchange, there's very little data in the traditional MSPs and VMS systems, as far as this kind of sophistication. The idea that you can make those decisions or provide that direction based on data versus somebody's personal idea of, oh, well, I know this person, or I know this agency, or I went to some QBR and we measured the metrics. It's no, actually, I'm going to follow the data and let the, the system make intelligent choices to solve my problem, whether it's time to hire or diversity or, you know, very specialized yeah. talent is, yeah. is interesting. So it's one of the reasons I wanted to have. Uh, yeah, it's great. It's more objective, right? Everyone can have their opinion about what's a better way to do this or that. But at least now we can all be looking at the same data and we can still have different opinions on it. But at least we're looking, we're starting off with a, a point of the same data. And that's what we try to do with our customers who will show them the data. They may still decide, hey, I want to put this job in at like 10% fee, even though we say you're not going to get any candidates because here's the data. Yep. Okay, they still can make that decision and maybe they'll get lucky and only have to pay a small amount or maybe they won't get any candidates. We su- suggest it might happen and then they're like, okay, we tried and then they'll up it or something. So, you know, at least we're working off the same point and if they do want to do that and they don't get any candidates, then we're all objectively looking at them and going, okay, we know why. And we, we knew that was a risk, and now we can go do something else to, to solve the problem. But the other thing on the bias, just to uh, sort of finish that one off, and this is, I think, really important, especially when you get to the candidate and trying to, you know, kind of, you said quality candidate, right? We were talking about that. There's something in, in sort of AI called the black box problem, right? And, and so when you use AI, you, it'll give you an answer. You don't really always know why, right? I mean, you can kind of suspect, like, but, but, but that's really bad, from kind of a recruiting standpoint, if you don't know why, because if you don't know why, it very well could be biased. And that's a big problem, right? So you have- well, ch- Chances are, if it came from human data sets, right. it is biased, whether it's a good bias or a bad bias. Is- right, so, but we don't, we don't really want that, right? So, so how, how, do we, how do we deal with that? Because if you kind of break it out into more known measures, you're throwing away a lot of good data that's actually gonna help you match stuff. So you really don't wanna do that. So what we're creating is a, like a more of a parallel system is what we have. And so we'll get an answer, but then we'll also get criteria and parameters that are driving that answer that we could share with people if they, if they wanna see all that much detail. And then what we're gonna look at is, is that like stack ranking of the recruiters or the candidates, is it fully explained by those pieces of data we pull out? And if it is, then we know we're not being skewed by some unwanted bias. And that's how we, so those two things that we so do. You're able to, you're able to sort of pull back the curtain on the black box and, and 
help uh, be transparent with the the customers of Scout and also do sort of quality control internally. Exactly. I've convinced myself, you know, <laughs> who has to go to sleep every uh, night uh, saying right. my, so, my, my algorithms are, are getting the right people hired and so forth. We've done our due diligence and we know our, our sort of rankings and so forth based on objective data that, that we think is a valid criteria. Now you could argue like, okay, let's say one of our valid criteria is like skills match, right? You could argue that, you know, the, the descriptions of the skills are being worded in a way that isn't quite fair. And those are very legitimate arguments, right? And those things need to be fixed. But as a one company, you know, we're doing our, I think our part, what we can, we can't fix every job description on the planet. Like hopefully there's other people who can help, help some people do that. But well, I really, I've read, I've read a lot of job descriptions in my life. So if you're, if your mission is to fix it, job descriptions, it's not right. <laughs> no way. Our mission is to get people hired right. and to do it through, you know, matching of recruiters. But yeah, we want to make sure we feel very comfortable that the stuff that's coming out of our algorithms is is based on good criteria. So how does Scout improve the candidate experience? I mean, to your point, the high quality experts that companies are looking for are not sitting on a shelf and, and they're definitely not sitting in a, in a pool. <laughs> From my lived experience, when I go through a process and I've been hired for tons of jobs in, yeah. in my career, that initial conversation and the efficiency of that conversation and the professional nature of that conversation gives me a certain perspective on the yeah. organization I'm about to join. So how to scout the process, you know, make it such a good experience yeah. and, oh, I want to work for this organization. Right. You really just answered your own question, which is awesome, right? So if you think about what we're talking about with rating, so we're rating the employer recruiter, the recruiter who's looking to fill a position, whether it's an MSP or internal, whatever, who's ever doing it. And then we, we just talked about we're rating also the third party, right? The staffing firm, search firm provider who's, you know, working with the candidate. So if you think about these ratings, you can't be good at filling positions if you're not good at creating a good candidate experience. It's just not going to happen. And the better you are at candidate experience, the more hires you're going to make, right? So well, the more successful hires and quality hires. Exactly. Right? Like you said, your impression starts right at the beginning with the recruiter who talked to you and how they managed that, how they set expectations, how they talked about the company. And then when you got over to the company side, again, it's the recruiter you worked with. And of course, it's the hiring manager and all those other things, but they got to get you to that point. And you're not going to get to that point and be receptive and, ha and be well-prepared right? If they're not doing their job really well, we sort of think of the rating as a stock price. You know how they say, it's not quite true, but it's close. All the information about a stock is kind of incorporated into the price and it's only going to move if there's sort of some new thing that happens because it's all baked in, right? So we look at the recruiter rating that way. It's like, if you're not good at kind of experience, if you're not good at understanding the requirements of a job, if you're not good at understanding the human you're talking to who needs a job or wants a job or has a job and trying to convince them to move somewhere else. If you're not good at understanding the culture of a company and that there's going to be a good fit, you're not going to get that high rating because you will not be as successful as someone who can do all those things really well. I did answer my own question, but I think, you know, from our earlier conversation, I just think it's fascinating bringing data to solve this problem. This is my favorite part of the show. It's called Rapid Fire. Awesome. I've got five questions I get to ask you. So I'd like you to say the first thing that comes to mind. The one thing that we added to the show is that you can ask me any two questions and I have to answer them. Ready? Mm-hmm. 
What is one thing about you that's not on your LinkedIn profile? That I won the state championship for wrestling back when I was in high school. Nice. I'm glad I didn't uh, upset you during this conversation. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Winston Churchill, on my mind right now, because I went to the war rooms and the impact he had on the world, you know, sort of galvanizing opposition to the Nazis in World War II. It's just unbelievably amazing. If you were stranded on a tropical island, what two things would you want with you? Hmm. This is like Sophie's choice because I was going to say my wife and two kids. Can I just answer that? You can, I'll, I'll, <laughs> give, I'll, I'll give you this one. What book or movie has inspired you the most over the past year? Recently, I started watching The Martian. So I don't know why. I just think it's really cool. Like all the things, it's all it's made up. Okay, we know it's a movie. But the, the way that, you know, he survived and he survived on this planet. And then also the humor of it of, hey, I'm the first person to do this you know whatever the first one on mars is like just the whole thing was just i thought really well done matt damon was awesome in it and you know, i really enjoyed it and i just recently rewatched it so part of this podcast is is this question so i can keep up like my netflix has gotten boring <laughs> and, and my kindle like i've read most of the books and so that's one of the reasons i asked the question last question what is better being radically curious or having great attention to detail curiosity by far so I think that is the one thing that I look for, like when we're hiring like people I want to hang out with, everything. It's like being curious and interested in learning. I, I just think like that's that's a human. Humans want to learn and are curious about stuff. And that to me, that's like the most exciting thing. Awesome. Well, I'm going to give you the chance to ask me any two questions if you'd like. If you had anyone from history, any three people, who would you have over for dinner? You know, I should, I should have the answer to this question because I asked one of the, the versions. If I could have any three, I'd have my great-grandfather who drove from Canada to Florida in a Model A Ford for a job opportunity that somebody offered him like in passing. And so he picked up his entire family and drove, and it was one of these campers mm, in a Model yeah, A. Yeah, cool. The idea of that risk, like, hey, I met somebody, they offered me a job, say, hey, I'll meet you in a couple of months, and Going with that handshake and, and uplift moving your family, I think would just be an interesting thing. I can't think of two more people. Got another question for you, though. Yeah, you go, because I want to come back and answer right. this question somewhere. In the, like, What's the most inspirational thing you've heard someone say at this conference since you got here? The most inspirational thing. It's one of two things. The more I've moved into the staffing space, and a lot of people think of the staffing space and the mechanics of the staffing space and the MSP and the BS. There is truly a group of people who believe in the word opportunity. And I think that there is a drive of the people that are trying to be progressive in this space to say there is nothing more important that we can work on than to democratize opportunity. And I think there are those people who say hey, it's a job, it's an industry, and here it is. More and more I find, and, and have had on the show, people who believe in opportunity and the democratization of, of opportunity. And so I, it's not a specific phrase, but it's, yeah. it's sort of a mission statement that a lot of people share that gets them up and going and says, hey, I, I want to disrupt, I want to transform this industry because there's, at this particular time in history, there's nothing more important that we could work on. And that's great. That's cool. I mean, I, I think that's sort of Scout's mission. It, it should be the industry. Like we are here to make sure like everyone has a great job. Yep. And so if we don't need technology, I don't care. Like but I think we do. I and mean, I think we can really help make that happen and make that more efficient, get people jobs and get the companies the talent they need. And so 
yeah, for me, it was done all sorts of different industries and technologies. I think it's like so cool that yeah. to be doing like the coolest tech, but and in, in an exciting industry and also getting people jobs, it's, it's just a nice combo. I'm going to give you one more question because yeah. I, I still cannot answer that other question. You have to think of one more. What's the craziest tech problem you've ever had during a podcast? The craziest tech problem? So we have this new board. We have, this is a, a brand new setup and it's got all sorts of features. And so we're like going through and, and trying to do this. And the ambient noise of the room and the tech, like the tech is so good. Like it has all these things that checks the noise. And mm. if the noise is good, it, and it's actually so good that when you press certain throttles on, it'll like cut you off in the middle, but it's doing its job. Like learning that the tech is actually doing its job mm. compared to like the unstructured nature of just, you know, the room and the guest and, and all of that sort of stuff. And so it's when you produce a podcast or any sort of content you produce and there's a bunch of new tech because all of the tech we're using is kind of the latest tech. It's, it's, a, it's a learning curve for sure. Awesome. So I think that's like a great lesson for introducing tech into the industry, right? There's going to be differences. There's going to be little subtle nuances you got to deal with and get used to. And you got to power through them because ultimately you have good tech. Yeah. And, and so what, right? I mean, you just got to figure out how to deal with it. And and there's, there is going to be that adjustment period for all this stuff, but it's so worth it. That's one of the things, anybody who produces content, especially audio content, loves the tech because once you master the tech, yeah, then it sort of goes to the background and the quality of whatever you do. Right. And similar to sort of what you do. Like if you go to implement scout in a setting, they're like, Oh, I, this is new and it's hard. But once it starts running, yeah, then it's, it's amazing. And, the and we do try to make it easy, but just even more in general, like, you know, I think this is, it's an industry, it's a people industry, right? And they're not as used to embracing tech and, but tech's here. So you got to embrace it and just power through these little things like you talked about. Cause you're going to get an awesome experience at the end of the day. It's worth be, it. And you have to be curious. Yeah. Like I, we just probably spent 45 minutes trying to understand why this particular thing was right. happening. Right. And once you understood the root cause of it, you're like, oh, that makes complete logical sense because yeah. it's a it's a tech system and it's binary. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much for stopping by this morning. If somebody wants to get in touch with you or learn more about Scout, what's the best way to do that? www.ghostscoutgo.com is the easiest way or my contact information's up on the site and all that stuff. It should be hopefully pretty easy and welcome everyone contacting us for sure. And thanks for the opportunity to be here to talk a little about Scout, talk a little about the industry. It was great meeting you. Yeah. Uh, so it's been a fun conference and this, you know, getting together with you and others has been a big part of it. Great. So thanks. Thank you so much, Ken. All right. Take care. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Talent Economy.